The Ability One program employs people with disabilities to manufacture many commodities for the government, from military uniforms to those wonderful ballpoint pens. I've got a couple of dozen of them myself. A big focus for Ability One is office supplies and furnishings, and for how the program is faring with so much of federal office space vacant. We turn to the Ability One Executive Director, Kim Zeik. Ms. Zeik, good to have you with us. Um, it is great to be with you and your listeners. Thank you for the opportunity to talk about Ability One and how our disability employment program is evolving and delivering for our customers. Yeah, and just review for us the fact that I guess the major customer for Ability One is federal procurement officers, the federal government, so that this is not a charitable thing, but it's a way of helping the government and helping the people that you serve as employees. Yes, the Ability One program leverages federal procurement to tap into one of our nation's underutilized workforces. That is, people who are blind or people with significant disabilities. As you mentioned, we supply a number of products and perform a lot of services as well uh, across the United States in federal buildings, federal military installations. And in doing so, our program provides an on-ramp to employment and the economy for individuals who are blind or have significant disabilities. And a big product line has been office furnishings, office furniture, and also so many of the supplies people needed. I mentioned those famous pens that I think go back to World War II, still one of the great items of all time in the field of writing instruments. But has the Ability One business been affected by the fact that since the onset of the pandemic, you know, people's offices have been largely vacant? One of the predictable consequences of the pandemic was a lower demand for some of the Ability One products. We know that the consumable office supplies, for example, were not being used at the same rate in fiscal year 21, 22. But we are seeing a rebound in sales of some of these most commonly used products through the third quarter of this fiscal year. And historically, the fourth quarter is a spike in sales. So that will really determine the outcome for the entire year. I will say that our services sales have been stable year over year. Those tend to have fewer peaks and valleys, but we do expect to see a slight upturn at the end of this year. Well, that's good. And I guess the other product lines like military uniforms and so forth would have been unaffected by whatever happened outside in the economy and the rest of it. Well, the Department of Defense is the Ability One program's largest customer. And I will say that our sales and employment tends to rise as DOD purchasing rises. So I don't see a significant impact in terms of the pandemic. Of course, DOD did get very involved in purchasing the PPE items, the personal protective equipment that were so critical and necessary at the outset of the pandemic. And that is one area in which the Ability One program truly surged. We had people who are blind or have significant disabilities working second shifts, even weekends at the start of the pandemic to make sure we could get PPE to our customers. I guess the obvious question now that we're past all of this, were people mostly still in person working? Because it could be that the accommodating types of technologies or systems for people with disabilities may not have been replicated in their homes. And so during that period, they would still be working together? Or how'd that all happen? By and large, the Ability One employees never left the workplace. We have over 36,000 program employees. They have many of those essential frontline jobs that continue to be performed on site throughout the pandemic. I mentioned they took on extra shifts, they produced extra products, 
They also worked very hard to clean and disinfect federal buildings to provide essential services like hospital housekeeping and really supported the continuity of our customers' operations. I'm very proud of the way our workforce demonstrated just how committed and essential they are. We're speaking with Kim Zyke. She is the executive director of the U.S. Ability One Commission. And recently there were new, I guess, congressionally mandated compliance requirements for the Ability One employers with respect to paying people more than they had been paying. What's going on there? How are you responding? And how's that whole update going? The U.S. Ability One Commission published a rule last year that would end the payment of subminimum wages on Ability One contracts. And the commission communicated in the strongest possible way that subminimum wages are not consistent with the values and expectations that we have for the Ability One program. I'm very happy to say that the implementation has gone smoothly. And as of October 1st of this year, we will have parity in minimum wages across all Ability One employees. So that's a very positive step for our program. It's a promise the commission made and a promise the commission is keeping. And it's also very important to our community. I've spoken with a number of employees who used to earn less than the minimum wage. I was just in Seattle last week meeting with some of our employees and they understand what it means to be treated the same as everyone else and to earn the same as everyone else. So it's truly a matter of respect and equity. And are commission employees employees of the government in that sense, or do they work for contractors who are then reselling, in effect, to the commission and to the government? The Ability One workforce that is comprised of persons who are blind or have significant disabilities, they are federal contractors. They work for nonprofit Ability One qualified employers across the country. And then we have the U.S. Ability One Commission, which is the federal agency charged with oversight and administration. And we are a small, what I would call a micro agency headquartered in Washington. Got it. And the long term implication of people making at least minimum wage is that, you know, if they have something like an IRA or any kind of savings plan, then their long term potential for taking care of themselves in old age is enhanced because they have more to put away. I'm so glad you brought up the financial benefits and the financial planning perspective. We're working very closely with nonprofit organizations that are implementing and communicating about ABLE accounts. ABLE accounts are savings accounts that people who have disabilities can open depending on when they had an onset of their disability. And the beauty of ABLE accounts is it does allow individuals to save more money and accrue some assets And the savings in those ABLE accounts don't count against their thresholds to earn certain benefits. All right. What else do we need to know this year? I mean, we're coming to the end of a fiscal year. And as this airs, people are rushing with whatever money they do have in this end. But what do people need to know about Ability One as we enter 2024 fiscally and pretty soon on the calendar? Yes. The Ability One program, in a nutshell, is a network of responsive and reliable contractors who are accustomed to adapting and meeting the changing needs of our federal customers through a workforce that intentionally includes people who are blind or have significant disabilities. Ability One is evolving. We have a strategic plan and a strategic direction that places a strong emphasis on quality contract performance, competitive pricing, partnerships with industry, and also integrated employment outcomes. 
We're partnering with a number of other federal agencies and federal contractors so that Ability One can also be a talent pool for them. And I would also add that next month is National Disability Employment Awareness Month. Every October is an opportunity to celebrate the contributions of American workers with disabilities and to showcase inclusive employment policies and practices. So this year's theme is Advancing Access and Equity, and the Office of Disability Employment Policy within the Department of Labor has some excellent online resources for those interested in learning more. All right. And are those black famous pens still bestsellers? The black retractable pen will never go away. I've got a blue retractable pen here at my desk. So the Ability One Skillcraft products are iconic in the federal government, and they create employment. Well, they write better than a Mont Blanc, I can tell you that. Kim Zyke is Executive Director of the U.S. Ability One Commission. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. Everett Kelly, National President of the American Federation of Government Employees, joined Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to share how his upbringing in rural Alabama eventually propelled him to the forefront of thousands of union members raising a collective voice. After years of leadership with both the largest federal employee union and as a pastor, Everett Kelly reflects on his deep-rooted values of integrity and hard work. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Mr. Everett Kelly, National President of the American Federation of Government Employees. Everett, welcome, and thank you for being here. Shane, thank you. It's a pleasure. It's mine. You first joined AFGE in 1981 during what eventually became your 30 years of service at Anniston Army Depot. We're now more than 40 years past 1981, and you've been the union's national president since 2020. How's your decades-long involvement with AFGE impacted the way you view your role now as the union's leader? The time that I spent as local president, I simultaneously spent that same time as a pastor in Alabama. I like to say that this was my training ground because as I was entering into the role of unionism, I was also entering into ministry. And so I see my role even as the union leader as ministry. It's never an understatement because this is what I believe. I believe that if you love people and show people that you love them, people will follow you. My business is in the business of growing people, uh, and that's what I do. And I I think that my training as a pastor and as a union uh, leader has given me the ability to really, you know, uh, grow people because I feel like that, you know, it's my responsibility both as a union leader and as a pastor to ensure that people have a livable wage, It's also uh, my responsibility to ensure that people are treated fair with dignity and respect on the job. And I think that goes in both uh, arenas. So so I've seen this, you know, as ministry, as I've grown through the four decades of leading people. Putting those two together is amazing. AFGE handles a massive array of issues and topics of importance to feds across many departments and agencies. What is it like being at the forefront of all those moving parts, and how do you manage it all? 
Well, first of all, let me give kudos to my staff, okay? Uh, because it's just no way that I could manage all of this work and all the moving parts by myself. But I have an excellent staff that always makes sure that I'm prepared and that I'm ready. But it's exciting. It's exciting to be out in the forefront, you know, uh, bringing people to the realization that they have something to fight for. But again, I cannot, and please understand, when I say I cannot, it's, it's, it's what I truly believe. I cannot do it without a good, strong staff. Uh, and I tell anybody that, but I enjoy fighting for the cause. I enjoy standing in front of a group of ALG members, calling them to action, and then standing back and watching that action come to fruition. Because I know that I'm not the one that's doing it, okay? They are the one that's doing it. I'm merely casting a vision, right? And I enjoy casting a vision and then watching a vision come to fruition. And it's the staff and the members that get that done. As CEO at, at WEPA, I completely and totally understand that. We rely on them. It's not Absolutely. just nice to have. We rely on Absolutely. them. Absolutely. As AFGE president, you often speak at union rallies and other events widely attended by federal employees. What's it like to experience that direct connection to employees? And how does that influence your leadership style? You know, that gets me excited, okay? To be standing in front of a group of AFGE leaders get me excited. To hear the words, who are we, and the chants that come back that says AFGE gets me excited. It gets my motor uh, running, if you will. And it's exciting to look at them and see the motivation in their faces when they're fighting for a cause. And, and, and all of us come together and fight uh, in solidarity, fight as one, raise one voice, you can't explain the feeling. You just know that it's right. You know, I just know that it's right. When I'm standing there and I feel this, and I never fail to say thank you again because I'm the one that merely cast the vision. They are the ones that get the work done. And so when I see them out there ready to go and that call to action goes out, and then I see them really begin to march on that uh, initiative, it's an energy that I cannot explain. I can explain it. I'm feeling it right now. <laughs> um, de describe how your personal background and upbringing folds into how you function as a leader. You know, understanding that I was born in the Deep South. I was born in a little small town in Goodwater, Alabama, population 1,292 today. Born to parents that, and I hope I don't offend anybody, and I've got to quit saying this, but, but I was born to a set of parents that, believed and trusted in God. And that began to establish who I was. I began to trust God myself in everything that I do. I, I trust God even in this situation as a union leader because my parents taught me to believe in uh, the Bible. And with that came do unto others as you would have them to do unto you. In other words, treat people right. Treat people with respect, right? Do what's right. It taught me, you know, about integrity, right? It taught me about being honest, you know, and that's what's needed in the role of a leader of this union. It, it, it's, it's needed 
Uh, and, you know, I try to portray that. I try to portray a person of honesty and a person of integrity. And so being in the Deep South, you know, you, you, you just learn those things. And that's what has helped me uh, throughout my path as a union leader. And it's always nice, that whole approach, because you don't have multiple approaches with different people or different sets of different tasks, different energy. It's, it's always straightforward, yes. honest, here's the truth. Yes. And it, it's, it's easy. Yes, right? yes. It's a lot easier than having multiple personas. Absolutely. You, yeah. Absolutely. What's one piece of advice, if you could go back and tell yourself when you were starting your career? You know, I don't know you're asking for one, but I'm, I'm going to have to elaborate on two, yeah, if that's yeah. okay. Number one, I would explain the urgency of integrity a lot sooner than what I did, right? Because to me, integrity is not necessarily what you see others do or what others see you do, but integrity to me is what you do even when no one is looking. And so I, I would really begin to stress that importance more so at an earlier state in my leadership role rather than the latter part. Okay, I begin to stress that more now, but I wish I had began to do that more at the earlier states in my uh, role. Secondly, I would tell myself to always, and I'm going back to my roots, always work hard and don't ever accept no as an answer, right? Because I just believe that if you want it bad enough, if you want to achieve it, you can. It's all about the amount of work you put into it, right? And the and the amount of faith you have that it can be accomplished. So when I look at AFGE and its membership and where we were four or five years ago and where we are today, that's a reminder that you can do whatever you want to do if you put your mind to it and work hard enough. And one question that's always kind of interesting at, at the end of our time together is, is there one person, you mentioned your parents before, mm-hmm. um, is there one person or maybe more than one who really inspired you when you were younger that you might even think back on today? It was my grandmother, you know, with the understanding that when and when I was born, right, as I said, I was born in the Deep South. My father worked extremely hard. We didn't have a whole lot. You know, my, I had 12 siblings. And so when I was born, I was very sick. As a matter of fact, the doctor said I wouldn't live to be 16 years old. The doctor said I wouldn't ever hold a job. But my grandmother would always teach me how to pray. And she taught me about faith. And it is prayer and faith that has allowed me to be standing here today. Suppose I've been dead 50 years ago, but I'm 66 years old now. And it's all because of my faith and my belief and my prayer life. And I believe that beyond a shadow of a doubt. Amazing story. Thank you for sharing all of it with us, Everett. And really appreciate you being on the show today. Pleasure is mine. And this is Shane Canfield. We'll see you next time on Lessons in Leadership. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.